0: Hello, I'm Chris Kreicho and this is the New Rust Station Podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode 19. Let's clone a cow. One quick note before we jump into the episode. If you hear it before March 2017 ends, you should take a look at Underhanded.rs, where the Rust community team is running a contest to create deliberate vulnerabilities in Rust software to help improve security all around, which is hugely important given one of Rust's major goals is making more secure software. If that's something you are interested in, check it out. Now, into the show proper. Over the past several episodes, we've been working through some of the different patterns Rust offers us for dealing with managing memory. In episode 13, we looked at lifetimes, what they are, how to write them, and when you need to write them. In episode 14, we zoomed in on the details of managing strings specifically. In episode 15, we looked at smart pointers, especially box and the RC, ARC, and their corresponding weak types. In episode 16, we followed up by looking at how we can use the different cell types to manage mutable access to data and thread-safe access to data as well. In episode 17, we took a step back and just talked about the general syntax and semantics of referencing and dereferencing and their corresponding operators. In episode 18, we talked about the borrow, asref, and deref traits. Lots and lots of discussion about memory management, in other words. That makes a lot of sense. In some ways, Rust's whole reason for existing is that we need a way to manage memory safely. But this episode is going to pretty much wrap that up, at least at a first pass, because we'll largely have covered things where memory itself is front and center. To be sure, the topic will continue coming up, for example, when we talk about the traits for thread safety. But it'll be a little less front and center going forward. In today's episode, we'll tie all of this up with a bow, talking about the copy and clone traits and the cow type. Before we start, though, we need to pause and talk about a few things we skipped over when we talked about traits back in episodes 8 and 9. Default implementations, marker traits, and super traits. A trait can supply a default implementation for one of its methods when the normal or default behavior of that method can be known ahead of time. Most traits don't have these, because in most cases you don't have any way to know ahead of time how a given type will need to implement its interface. For example, equality and ordering, expressed with the EQ and ORD traits, simply couldn't have default implementations. But on the other hand, there are cases, one of which we'll see below, where we can know what a good default implementation is. The current version of the Rust book uses the example of a trait which supplies isValid and isInvalid methods. You might not know what isValid should do to come up with a meaningful return value, but regardless of what it does, you can probably assume that isInvalid can just return not isValid. Of course, implementers need a way to change the implementation if there's a better way to do it for any specific type. In that validity checking scenario, for example, it might be the case that you need to do an exhaustive check, but could more cheaply do a sequence of checks and therefore have better best-case performance for calling isInvalid than you would get by simply negating isValid. In that case, you just add the method definition in the impl block, like with any other trait method implementation. When we talked about traits originally, we described them as a way of describing common structure or behavior. However, there is a set of traits which have no functionality and no members of their own, but which simply mark the implementing type as having certain properties. These are called marker traits. There are a number of these traits in standard marker, including send, sized, sync, and, important for our purposes today, copy. There are also others elsewhere in the standard library including the unwind safe and its buddy ref unwind safe which live in the standard panic module the idea of a marker trait is that it's totally empty and it's simply used to serve as a marker for some kind of guarantee about a type you can even implement your own if you have a good use case for it the aforementioned unwind safe types aren't built into the compiler they are simply defined in standard now, what are super traits, the third of those things we elided in our original discussion? Traits in Rust can indicate that they are sub traits of another trait. If you're coming from an object oriented background, your first instinct on hearing that might be to think of them as analogous to a subclass and superclass relationship, but it's not quite like that. Instead, it's more like an interface which extends another interface. In today's discussion, for example, we'll see that copy declares clone as its super trait. By doing that, the copy declaration is actually saying that it is more specific than clone. That is, all copy implementors are clone implementors, but not all clone implementors are copy implementors. We'll talk about the reason for that in a minute. You write a subtrait relationship by using a colon and the name of the supertrait after declaring the trait you're interested in. So in the case of copy, it's written pub trait copy colon clone, and then the empty, remember it's a marker trait, empty body. There are many such sub and supertrait relationships in the standard library. They're really much the same as any generic type constraint, except that they apply to traits rather than to generics. For a couple examples... EQ for strict equality requires partial EQ for partial equality. And similarly, ORD for strict ordering requires partial ORD for partial ordering. There are many others. Now, let's apply this to these traits. The copy trait applies to types, and here I'm quoting the standard library, quote, whose values can be duplicated simply by copying bits, unquote. That's distinct from types whose values can't be duplicated simply by copying bits, usually because of some degree of indirection, behind pointers. Put another way, these are simple types. There are no references to worry about here, because if there were, we couldn't just copy the bits. Why that constraint matters you'll see in a minute when we talk about clone, because clone is a necessary precondition for copy. However, what we're more interested in is the semantics here. In the normal case, Rust moves the ownership of the data whenever it can. Here's an extremely simple example of that, which I've written out in the show notes. Let's say we declared a struct point, which had 64-bit floating point members, X, Y, and Z, and an origin method in the impl block. Then we could declare a point. Let a point equal point origin. Now, if on the very next line we wrote let moved point equal a point, and then tried to use the print line macro to print out the original a point, the compiler will give us a use of moved value error because Rust moved ownership of the data from the original a point binding to the new moved point binding. And as such, we can't get back at that data from the original binding. This would violate Rust's core rules about ownership, Remember, from our very earliest discussions, only one binding gets to own the data at a time. There are times, however, when we don't want move semantics, when we just want to make a copy so that we can still access the original value. You can imagine plenty of times when dealing with integers, for example, where you might want to set up the initial value of one binding with the current value of another binding and still be able to use the original. Lots of math equations might work this way, for example. And this is what copy is for the case where we want to get the same values in a new owned binding while leaving the ownership of the original data with the original binding the big upside is that then we can make an assignment and continue using the original name as well the big downside is that copies can be extremely expensive for very large data structures note that this distinction as i alluded to when i introduced it is the distinction at a semantic and not at the mechanical level between moving and copying data. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes, with move semantics, Rust can reuse the same memory for the next owner of the data. That kind of space reuse is a small win for something like an integer, but for a large enum or struct type, it can be a big win, especially over the life of the whole program. That's a really nice optimization when it can happen. But most of the time rust actually does copy the data over even when it's using move semantics the point of the copy trait is ownership not instructing the compiler how to handle the underlying memory and that makes sense after all if you specifically need to reuse the same memory you can just take a reference so that's copy but of course i brought up marker traits for a reason as i mentioned when i was discussing marker traits copy is a marker trait All it does is tell the compiler to use copy semantics instead of move semantics with types which implement it. But this raises an important question. How does the Rust compiler perform the copies? After all, if you want to copy the values for anything but extremely simple value types, you have to know how to copy them. For example, if there are references involved... Making a true duplicate involves following all of those references and creating copies of the values behind those references and then creating new references to those new copies. You may have heard this described as deep copying in languages like JavaScript or Python or so on. The clone trait is the trait which tells Rust how to perform those deep copies. So all copy types must also be clone types. Put another way, clone is a super trait for copy. But clone is also much more generally useful. After all, there are plenty of places you want to clone something while retaining normal move semantics instead of switching over to copy semantics for the underlying types. When dealing with strings, for example, it would be extremely expensive to make them copy types. That would mean you always made a full copy of a string any time you assigned it. That would destroy a lot of the performance wins we all appreciate in Rust. But you do need a way to specify how to get a copy of a string when you actually need a copy. And, of course, it's extremely valuable for there to be one standard, consistent way to do that, consistent across the whole variety of types, even if the implementation details differ on a per-type basis. And that's where clone comes in. The clone trait specifies two methods, clone and clone from. Implementers must implement the clone method, which specifies how to clone a given type, And they may implement clone from. I say may because a default implementation of clone from is supplied by the trait. The default implementation of clone from just does a bitwise copy of all the elements of the type. For many types, that's exactly what you want. But as with all default method implementations, you can override it and implement yourself if you need to. For example, if you have a smarter way to copy the data. If you're wondering about the deep copy problem there, well, this is why you can only implement clone for simple types or types which contain only other clone types. There is no way to automatically deep copy reference types unless those reference types also define how to clone themselves. However, once you do have a type whose members are all clone, you can just use the derive attribute, which we talked about in more detail back in episode 7, with the clone trait. And this makes sense. If you know how to clone every member of your type, then cloning that type is just recursively cloning its members. In other words, clone is just a normal deep copy, as you would see in those other languages. But with Rust's strong type guarantees wrapped around it, and the nice ergonomics of the derived syntax sugar to make it easier to use. And because clone is a super trait for the marker trait copy, any type which is clone can be copy for free. And just as any type whose members are all clone can be cloned, any type whose members are all copy can also be copy. Now, let's pivot slightly. Let's put some of these pieces together and look at the cow type. In this case, a cow is not a large, possibly smelly animal, but a clone on right or C-O-W cow smart pointer. The cow type pulls together the borrow and deref traits discussed in episode 18 and the clone trait which we just talked through. With cow, we have a type that gives you immutable access to data you are only borrowing access to using the borrow trait, but it lets you get a mutable copy of the data if you need to mutate it using the clone trait. That way when you have a piece of data where you don't know until runtime whether you'll need to mutate it or not, you can just wrap it in a cow. And since it implements deref, it will do that one nice little bit of automatic type coercion the Rust compiler does. You can transparently use cow wrapped types with functions which expect the wrapped type. Of course, just like with other smart pointers, you do have the small overhead of allocating that smart pointer on the heap, and you have the potentially very large performance costs of doing a deep copy on a large data structure from using clone. But this can make our APIs a lot friendlier. If you're not in a performance-critical section of your codebase, you may not care that much about whether a copy happens when you write something. And accordingly, you may not want to have to write .clone every time you need to make a copy and do something with it while leaving the original ownership in place. How does this work? Well, under the covers, cow is actually an enum with two variants, borrowed and owned. The owned type explicitly wraps around a trait which is also called owned, and which is itself, and here I'm quoting the docs again, quote, a generalization of clone, unquote. Owned not only lets you go from a reference to some type T to an owned copy of that type T, but also from any borrow, including those created with the borrow trait as discussed in episode 18. The borrowed variant of cow, meanwhile, lets the type wrap around borrowed data as well. So cow is general purpose and can be used equally with, for example, a string reference borrowed type or a string owned type. Here's the neat thing. By doing this, we're not working around or dodging the borrow checker somehow. We're actually working with the borrow checker. We only ever borrow references to data we need to access immutably. And when we get to a point where we find that we do need to write some change, the cow will automatically run its implementation of clone and hand us a copy of the data. But the thing that's nice about this is you don't pay that cost of copying the data all the time. You only copy the data when you change it. And you're also not paying the ergonomic costs of having to think explicitly about ownership all the time. As long as you consider the performance trade-offs carefully, it can be a pretty big win. Cow makes for a really nice abstraction. I should also note in closing, Tau is pretty straightforward to implement. You can go look at the source, which I'll have linked in the show notes, and you can see for yourself. There's nothing magical happening there, and there are less than 100 lines of very readable code required to implement the whole thing. So that wraps up our journey through single-threaded memory management at a high level in Rust. In the months ahead, I'm expecting to do another interview. I also plan to tackle a question a high-tier sponsor posed about structuring and organizing larger code bases, to talk in some detail about cargo, and then to dive back down into more nitty-gritty details about using Rust. Thanks again, as always, to Chris Palmer, Christopher Gifford, Matt Rutter, Ben Whitley, Peter Tillemans, Philip Keller, Stephen Morosky, Rafe Levine, and Vesa Kailavirta for sponsoring the show this month. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash or give a one-off contribution at any of a number of other services listed on the show website. Or if you're a company interested in advertising to developers, please email me. You can also find links to each of these types as well as examples of implementing things that use these types at newrestation.com. You can follow the show on Twitter, at new Rust Station, or follow me there, at Chris Kreitchow. If you enjoy the show, would you do me a huge favor? Would you tell somebody about it, rate and review it in iTunes, or share it around on social media? I love getting new listeners and helping new people discover Rust. So if you could help me with that, that would be awesome. I also love to hear your feedback. Please do send further suggestions for topics, interviewees, and so on. You can email me at hello at newruststation.com, or you can comment in the threads for the episode on the Rust user forum, Hacker News, or Reddit. Until next time, happy coding.